0: Chapter 9 of Chopin, the Man and His Music. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Christopher Smith. Chopin, the Man and His Music by James Honecker. Chapter 9 Night and Its Melancholy Mysteries The Nocturnes. Here is the chronology of the nocturnes. Opus 9, three nocturnes, January 1833. Opus 15, three nocturnes, January 1834. Opus 27, two nocturnes, May 1836. Opus 32, two nocturnes, December 1837. Opus 37, two nocturnes, May 1840 opus forty-eight two nocturnes november eighteen forty-one opus fifty-five two nocturnes august eighteen forty-four opus sixty-two two nocturnes september eighteen forty-six in addition there is a nocturne written in eighteen twenty-eight and published by fontana with the opus number seventy-two number two and the lately discovered one in c-sharp minor written when chopin was young and published in 1895. This completes the nocturne list, but following Niecks' system of formal grouping, I include the Berceuse and the Barcarolle as full-fledged specimens of nocturnes. John Field has been described as the forerunner of Chopin. The limpid style of this pupil and friend of Clementi, his beautiful touch and finished execution were certainly admired and imitated by the pole field's nocturnes are now neglected so curious are time's caprices and without warrant for not only is field the creator of the form but in both his concertos and nocturnes he has written charming sweet and sane music he rather patronized chopin for whose melancholy pose he had no patience he has the talent of the hospital growled field in the intervals between his wine-drinking pipe-smoking and the washing of his linen the latter economical habit he contracted from Clementi. There is some truth in his stricture. Chopin, seldom exuberantly cheerful, is morbidly sad and complaining in many of the nocturnes. The most admired of his compositions, with the exception of the valses, they are in several instances his weakest yet he ennobled the form originated by field giving it dramatic breadth passion and even grandeur set against field's naïve and idyllic specimens chopin's efforts are often too bejewelled for true simplicity too lugubrious too tropical asiatic is a better word and they have the exotic savour of the heated conservatory and not the fresh scent of the flowers reared in the open by the less poetic irishman and then Chopin is so desperately sentimental in some of these compositions. They are not altogether to the taste of this generation. They seem to be suffering from anemia. However, there are a few noble nocturnes, and methods of performance may have much to answer for the sentimentalising of some others. More vigour, a quickening of the time-pulse, and a less languishing touch will rescue them from lush sentiment. Chopin loved the night and its soft mysteries as much as did Robert Louis Stevenson, and his nocturnes are true night-pieces, some with agitated, remorseful countenance, others seen in profile only, while many are whisperings at dusk. Most of them are called feminine, a term psychologically false. The poetic side of men of genius is feminine and, in Chopin, the feminine note was overemphasized. At times it was almost hysterical, particularly in these nocturnes. The Scotch have a proverb. She wove her shroud and wore it in her lifetime. In the nocturnes the shroud is not far away. Chopin wove his to the day of his death, and he wore it sometimes, but not always, as many think one of the most elegiac of his nocturnes is the first in b-flat minor it is one of three opus nine dedicated to madame camille playel of far more significance than its two companions it is for some reason neglected while i am far from agreeing with those who hold that in the early chopin all his genius was completely revealed yet this nocturne is as striking as the last for it is at once sensuous and dramatic melancholy and lovely emphatically a mood it is best heard on a gray day of the soul when the times are out of joint its silken tones will bring a triste content as they pour out upon one's hearing the second section in octaves is of exceeding charm as a melody it has all the lurking voluptuousness and mystic crooning of its composer there is flux and reflux throughout passion peeping out in the coda the e-flat nocturne is graceful shallow of content but if it is played with purity of touch and freedom from sentimentality it is not nearly so banal as it usually seems it is field-like therefore play it as did rubinstein in a field-like fashion hado calls attention to the remote and recondite modulations in the twelfth bar the chromatic double notes for him they only are one real modulation the rest of the passage is an iridescent play of colour an effect of superficies not an effect of substance. It was the E-flat nocturne that unloosed Rellstab's critical wrath in the iris. Of it, he wrote, where Field smiles, Chopin makes a grinning grimace. Where Field sighs, Chopin groans. Where Field shrugs his shoulders, Chopin twists his whole body. Where Field puts some seasoning into the food, Chopin empties a handful of cayenne pepper. In short, if one holds Field's charming romances before a distorting concave mirror, so that every delicate impression becomes a coarse one, one gets Chopin's work. We implore Mr. Chopin to return to nature." Rellstad might have added that while Field was often commonplace, Chopin never was rather is to be preferred the sound judgment of j w davison the english critic and husband of the pianist arabella goddard of the early works he wrote commonplace is instinctively avoided in all the works of chopin a stale cadence or a trite progression a humdrum subject or a worn-out passage a vulgar twist of the melody or a hackneyed sequence a meagre harmony, or an unskilful counterpoint, may in vain be looked for throughout the entire range of his compositions, the prevailing characteristics of which are a feeling as uncommon as beautiful, a treatment as original as felicitous, a melody and a harmony as new, fresh, vigorous, and striking as they are utterly unexpected and out of the original track. In taking up one of the works of Chopin you are entering, as it were, a fairy-land, untrodden by human footsteps, a path hitherto unfrequented but by the great composer himself. Gracious, even coquettish, is the first part of the B major nocturne of this opus. Well knit, the passionate intermezzo has the true dramatic Chopin ring. It should be taken à la breve. The ending is quite effective. I do not care much for the F major nocturne, Opus 15, number 1. The opus is dedicated to Ferdinand Hiller. Aylert speaks of the ornament in triplets with which he brushes the theme as with the gentle wings of a butterfly, and then discusses the artistic value of the ornament which may be so profitably studied in the Chopin music. From its nature the ornament can only beautify the beautiful music like chopin's with its predominating elegance could not forego ornament but surely he did not purchase it of a jeweller he designed it himself with a delicate hand he was the first to surround a note with diamond facets and to weave the rushing floods of his emotions with the silver beams of the moonlight in his nocturnes there is a glimmering as of distant stars from these dreamy, heavenly gems he has borrowed many a line. The Chopin Nocturne is a dramatized ornament. And why may not art speak for once in such symbols? In the much-admired F-sharp Major Nocturne the principal theme makes its appearance so richly decorated that one cannot avoid imagining that his fancy confined itself to the arabesque form for the expression of its poetical sentiments. Even the middle part borders upon what I should call the tragic style of ornament. The ground thought is hidden behind a dense veil, but a veil, too, can be an ornament. In another place, Aylhert thinks that the F-sharp major nocturne seems inseparable from champagne and truffles. It is certainly more elegant and dramatic than the one in F-major which precedes it. That, with the exception of the middle part in F minor, is weak, although rather pretty and confiding. The F-sharp nocturne is popular, the doppio movimento is extremely striking, and the entire piece is saturated with young life, love, and feelings of goodwill to men. Read Klesinski. The third nocturne of the three is in G minor, and contains some fine picturesque writing. Kulak does not find in it aught of the fantastic. The languid, earth-weary voice of the opening, and the churchly refrain of the chorale, is not this fantastic contrast? This nocturne contains in solution all that Chopin developed later in a nocturne of the same key. But I think the first stronger. Its lines are simpler, more primitive, its colouring less complicated, yet quite as rich and gloomy. Of it, Chopin said, after Hamlet, but changed his mind. Let them guess for themselves, was his sensible conclusion. Kulak's programme has a conventional ring. It is the lament for the beloved one, the lost Lenore, with the consolation of religion thrown in. The bell-tones of the plain chant bring to my mind little that consoles, although the piece ends in the major mode it is like poe's ulalum a complete and tiny tone poem rubinstein made much of it in the fourth bar and for three bars there is a held note f and i heard the russian virtuoso by some miraculous means keep this tone prolonged the tempo is abnormally slow and the tone is not in a position where the sustaining pedal can sensibly help it yet under rubinstein's fingers it swelled and diminished and went singing into d as if the instrument were an organ i suspected the inaudible changing of fingers on the note or a sustaining pedal it was wonderfully done the next nocturne opus twenty seven number one brings us before a masterpiece with the possible exception of the c minor nocturne this one in the sombre key of c sharp minor is the great essay in the form. Klesinski finds it a description of a calm night at Venice where, after a scene of murder, the sea closes over a corpse and continues to serve as a mirror to the moonlight. This is melodramatic. Willoughby analyses it at length with the scholarly fervour of an English organist. He finds the accompaniment to be mostly on a double pedal and remarks that higher art than this one could not have if simplicity of means be a factor of high art. The wide-meshed figure of the left hand supports a morbid, persistent melody that grates on the nerves. From the piu mosso the agitation increases, and here let me call to your notice the Beethovenish quality of these bars, which continue until the change of signature. There is a surprising climax followed by sunshine and favour in the D-flat part, then, after mounting dissonances, a bold succession of octaves returns to the feverish plaint of the opening. Kulak speaks of a resemblance to Meyerbeer's song Le Moine. The composition reaches exalted states. Its psychological tension is so great at times as to border on a pathological condition there is unhealthy power in this nocturne which is seldom interpreted with sinister subtlety henry t fink rightfully thinks it embodies a greater variety of emotion and more genuine dramatic spirit on four pages than many operas on four hundred the companion picture in d flat opus twenty seven number two has as karasowski writes a profusion of delicate fioriture it really contains but one subject and is a song of the sweet summer of two souls for there is obvious meaning in the duality of voices often heard in the concert-room this nocturne gives us a surfeit of sixths and thirds of elaborate ornamentation and monotone of mood yet it is a lovely imploring melody and harmonically most interesting a curious marking, and usually overlooked by pianists, is the crescendo and con forza of the cadenza. This is obviously erroneous. The theme, which occurs three times, should first be piano, then pianissimo, and lastly forte. This opus is dedicated to the Comtesse d'Appogni. The best part of the next nocturne, B major, opus 32, number one. Dedicated to Madame de Billing is the coda. It is in the minor, and is like the drumbeat of tragedy. The entire ending, a stormy recitative, is in stern contrast to the dreamy beginning. Kulak, in the first bar of the last line, uses a G, Fontana F-sharp, and Clindworth the same as Kulak. The nocturne that follows in A-flat is a reversion to the field type, the opening recalling that master's B-flat nocturne. The F-minor section of Chopin's broadens out to dramatic reaches, but as an entirety this opus is a little tiresome. Nor do I admire inordinately the nocturne in G major, Opus 37, number 1. It has a complaining tone, and the chorale is not noteworthy. This particular part, so Chopin's pupil Gutmann declared, is taken too slowly, the composer having forgotten to mark the increased tempo. But the Nocturne in G, Opus 37, number 2, is charming. Painted with Chopin's most ethereal brush, without the cloying splendours of the one in D-flat, the double-sixths, fourths and thirds are magically euphonious. The second subject, I agree with Karasowski, is the most beautiful melody Chopin ever wrote. It is in true barcarolle vein, and most subtle are the shifting harmonic hues. Pianists usually take the first part too fast, the second too slowly, transforming this poetic composition into an etude. As Schumann wrote of this opus, the two nocturnes differ from his earlier ones, chiefly through greater simplicity of decoration and more quiet grace. We know Chopin's fondness in general for spangles, gold trinkets, and pearls. He has already changed and grown older. Decoration he still loves, but it is of a more judicious kind, behind which the nobility of the poetry shimmers through with all the more loveliness. Indeed, taste the finest must be granted him. Both numbers of this opus are without dedication. They are the offspring of the trip to Majorca. Niecks, writing of the G major nocturne adjures us not to tarry too long in the treacherous atmosphere of this capua. It bewitches and unmans. Krasinski calls the one in G minor homesickness, while the celebrated nocturne in C minor is the tale of a still greater grief told in an agitated recitando celestial harps ah i hear the squeak of the old romantic machinery come to bring one ray of hope which is powerless in its endeavour to calm the wounded soul which sends forth to heaven a cry of deepest anguish it doubtless has its despairing movement this same nocturne in c minor opus forty eight number one but Karasowski is nearer right when he calls it broad and most imposing with its powerful intermediate movement, a thorough departure from the nocturne style. Willoughby finds it sick and laboured, and even Niecks does not think it should occupy a foremost place among its companions. The ineluctable fact remains that this is the noblest nocturne of them all. Biggest in conception it seems a miniature music drama. It requires the grand manner to read it adequately, and the doppio movimento is exciting to a dramatic degree. I fully agree with Kulak that too strict adherence to the marking of this section produces the effect of an inartistic precipitation which robs the movement of clarity. Klesinski calls the work the contrition of a sinner and devotes several pages to its elucidation. De Lentz chats most entertainingly with Tausig about it. Indeed an imposing march of splendour is the second subject in C. A fitting pendant is this work to the C-sharp minor nocturne. Both have the heroic quality, both are free from mawkishness, and are of the greater Chopin, the Chopin of the mode masculine. Niex makes a valuable suggestion. In playing these nocturnes, Opus 48, there occurred to me a remark of Schumann's when he reviewed some nocturnes by Count Vialhorsky. He said that the quick middle movements which Chopin frequently introduced into his nocturnes are often weaker than his first conceptions, meaning the first portions of his nocturnes now although the middle part in the present instances are on the contrary slower movements yet the judgment holds good at least with respect to the first nocturne the middle part of which has nothing to recommend it but a full sonorous instrumentation if i may use this word in speaking of one instrument the middle part of the second d flat molto piu lento however is much finer in it we meet again as we did in some other nocturnes with soothing simple chord progressions. When Goodman studied the C-sharp minor nocturne with Chopin, the master told him that the middle section, the molto piu lento in D-flat major, should be played as a recitative. A tyrant commands the first two chords, he said, and the other asks for mercy. Of course NeX means the F sharp minor not the C sharp minor nocturne opus 48 number 2 dedicated with the C minor to mademoiselle L duper opus 55 two nocturnes in F minor and E flat major need not detain us long the first is familiar Tchaikovsky devotes a page or more to its execution he seeks to vary the return of the chief subject with nuances, as would an artistic singer the couplets of a classic song. There are cries of despair in it, but at last a feeling of hope. Kulak writes of the last measures, Thank God the goal is reached. It is the relief of a major key after prolonged wanderings in the minor. It is a nice nocturne, neat in its sorrow, yet not epoch-making." The one following has the impression of an improvisation. It also has the merit of being seldom heard. These two nocturnes are dedicated to Mademoiselle J. W. Stirling. Opus 62 brings us to a pair in B major and E major inscribed to Madame de Conneritz. The first, the tuberose nocturne, is faint with a sick, rich odour. The climbing trellis of notes that so unexpectedly leads to the tonic is charming, and the chief tune has a charm, a fruity charm. It is highly ornate; its harmony is dense. The entire surface overrun with wild ornamentation and a profusion of trills. The piece, the third of its sort in the key of B, is not easy. Metke gives the following explication of the famous chain trills. Musical score excerpt although this nocturne is luxuriant in style it deserves warmer praise than is accorded it irregular as its outline is its troubled lyrism is appealing is melting and the a-flat portion with its hesitating timid accents has great power of attraction the e major nocturne has a bardic ring its song is almost declamatory and not at all sentimental unless so distorted as Niecks would have us imagine. The intermediate portion is wavering and passionate, like the middle of the F-sharp major nocturne. It shows no decrease in creative vigour or lyrical fancy. The Clindworth version differs from the original, as an examination of the following examples will show, the upper being Chopin's. Musical score excerpt. The posthumous nocturne in E minor, composed in 1827, is weak and uninteresting. Moreover, it contains some very un chopin like modulations. The recently discovered nocturne in C-sharp minor is hardly a treasure-trove. It is vague and reminiscent. The following note was issued by its London publishers, Asherberg and Company the first question suggested by the announcement of a new posthumous composition of chopin's will be what proof is there of its authenticity to musicians and amateurs who cannot recognize the beautiful nocturne in c sharp minor as indeed the work of chopin it may in the first place be pointed out that the original manuscript of which a facsimile is given on the title-page is in chopin's well-known handwriting and secondly that the composition which is strikingly characteristic was at once accepted as the work of chopin by the distinguished composer and pianist balakirev who played it for the first time in public at the chopin commemoration concert held in the autumn of eighteen ninety four at the Zelezoa vola and afterward at warsaw this nocturne was addressed by chopin to his sister louise at warsaw in a letter from paris and was written soon after the production of the two lovely piano concertos when chopin was still a very young man it contains a quotation from his most admired concerto in f minor and a brief reference to the charming song known as the maiden's wish two of his sister's favourite melodies the manuscript of the Nocturne was supposed to have been destroyed in the sacking of the Zamoschki Palace at Warsaw toward the end of the insurrection of 1863, but it was discovered quite recently among papers of various kinds in the possession of a Polish gentleman, a great collector, whose son offered Mr. Polinski the privilege of selecting from such papers. His choice was three manuscripts of Chopin's, one of them being this Nocturne. A letter from mr polinski on the subject of this nocturne is in the possession of miss janotha is this the nocturne of which tausig spoke to his pupil josephie as belonging to the master's best period or did he refer to the one in e minor the bursa's opus 57 published in june 1845 and dedicated to mademoiselle elise gavard is the very sophistication of the art of musical ornamentation it is built on a tonic and dominant bass the triad of the tonic and the chord of the dominant seventh a rocking theme is set over this basso ostinato and the most enchanting effects are produced the rhythm never alters in the bass and against this background, the monotone of a dark grey sky, the composer arranges an astonishing variety of fireworks, some florid, some subdued, but all delicate in tracery and design. Modulations from pigeon-egg-blue to nile-green, most misty and subtle modulations dissolve before one's eyes, and for a moment the sky is peppered with tiny stars in doubles, each independently tinted. Within a small segment of the chromatic bow, Chopin has imprisoned new, strangely dissonant colours. It is a miracle, and after the drawn-out chord of the dominant seventh and the rain of silvery fire ceases, one realises that the whole piece is a delicious illusion, but an ululation in the key of D-flat, the apotheosis of pyrotechnical colourature. Niecks quotes Alexander Dumas Marfis, who calls the Bursers muted music, but introduces a Turkish bath comparison which crushes the sentiment. Mertke shows the original and Clindworth's reading of a certain part of the Bursers, adding a footnote to the examples. The Barcarolle, Opus 60, published in September 1846, is another highly elaborated work. Niex must be quoted here. One day Tausig, the great piano virtuoso, promised W. de Lentz to play him Chopin's Barcarolle, adding, "'That is a performance which must not be undertaken before more than two persons. "'I shall play you my own self. "'I love the piece, but take it rarely.' Lentz got the music, but it did not please him. It seemed to him a long movement in the nocturne style, a babel of figuration on a lightly laid foundation.' But he found that he had made a mistake and after hearing it played by tausig confessed that the virtuoso had infused into the nine pages of innovating music of one and the same long breathed rhythm so much interest so much motion so much action that he regretted the long piece was not longer tausig's conception of the barcarolle was this there are two persons concerned in the affair it is a love scene in a discreet gondola let us say this mise en scène is the symbol of a lover's meeting generally. This is expressed in thirds and sixths. The dualism of two notes, persons, is maintained throughout. All is two-voiced, two-souled. In this modulation in C-sharp major, superscribed Dolce Sforgato, there are kiss and embrace. This is evident when after three bars of introduction the theme lightly rocking in the bass solo enters in the fourth this theme is nevertheless made use of throughout the whole fabric only as an accompaniment and on this the cantilena in two parts is laid we have thus a continuous tender dialogue the barcarolle is a nocturne painted on a large canvas with larger brushes it has italian colour in spots schumann said that melodically chopin sometimes leans over germany into italy and is a masterly one in sentiment pulsating with amorousness to me it sounds like a lament for the splendours now vanished of venice the queen in bars eight nine and ten counting backward louis aylert finds obscurities in the middle voices it is dedicated to the Baron de Stockhausen. The nocturnes, including the berceuse and Barcarolle, should seldom be played in public and not the public of a large hall. Something of Chopin's delicate, tender warmth and spiritual voice is lost in larger spaces. In a small auditorium, and from the fingers of a sympathetic pianist the nocturnes should be heard that their intimate night-side may be revealed many are like the music en sourdine of paul verlaine in his chanson d'automne or le piano que baise une main frêle. they are essentially for the twilight for solitary enclosures where their still mysterious tones silent thunder in the leaves as yeats sings become eloquent, and disclose the poetry and pain of their Creator. End of chapter 9